Yeah. So, just because, yeah. Okay. If you guys want to stand with me, we'll do the call to worship. <laughs> this is taken from Psalm 105. Speaking about God's previous covenant keeping with Abraham. He says this. So, if you'll just read the uh, italicized section. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. If you want to turn... Your hymnal to song number five will do. Solid rock.
seated. Our confession of sin this morning is taken from Psalm 51. This is a well-known psalm written by David after he's confronted by the prophet Nathan after he's slept with Bathsheba and had her husband murdered uh, to cover up his sin. And he says these words, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. The, the great theologian Thomas Watson once said, Until sin is bitter, Christ will not be sweet. So let us remember that this morning. Let's um, ponder our sin from this past week in our life, and let's, let's turn to Christ. So if you'll read with me the, um, the prayer of confession there. Almighty God, we come before you this morning, like David, confessing our guilt asking that you would blot out our transgressions and cleanse us from our sin, not according to our goodness, but according to your steadfast love, not according to the works we have done, but according to your abundant mercy. For your name's sake, be gracious unto us and forgive us, we pray. Amen. To turn to song number one, we'll sing Before the Throne.
of pardon is taken this morning from both the continuation of Psalm 51 and Galatians 3. And this is where, even though we've looked at God's holiness and we've looked at our sin, that we're reminded that we cannot wash ourselves, but if God washes us, we will be clean. So this is a continuation of um, David's psalm in Psalm 51. He says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. So we see that this is by grace alone, through faith alone. In the following passage from Galatians 3, it says, Paul saying, Now then it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come before you this morning. Um, a little bit hot, <laughs> um, uncomfortable if we're honest, um, and even made uncomfortable by our sin, Lord. We each know our own sin intimately, and we know that it um, separates us from you and hurts ourselves and hurts others. But we thank you for sending Christ who washes us clean, and by faith in him, like Abraham's faith, we can um, have true blessing coming from Christ himself, knowing that he has done the work, that he has accomplished it, and we can have true assurance this morning. So help us to rest in Christ today. In your name we pray. Amen. So like we said, Abraham looked forward to Christ coming. We look back on the Christ who has come, this coming mediator. And so our confession of faith this morning is just trying to draw some of that stuff out. So this is from the Heidelberg Catechism, question 18 and 19. I'll read the bold section if you'll read with me the, the lowercase section. <clears throat> Question 18. Who is the only mediator, true God, and at the same time truly man? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who was given for us to set us free and to make us right with God. And the second question is asking, how do you come to know this? Namely, that Christ is this mediator. The gospel tells me, God himself began to reveal the gospel in the garden. Later, he proclaimed it by the patriarchs and prophets and portrayed it by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. Finally, he fulfilled it through his own son. Amen. If you guys want to turn with me to Acts 3. We've been chugging along, if you will. <laughs> I don't know if that's the right word, but 
Um, I'll try not to go too long today. But last, we've been looking at Acts and we've been trying, you guys are probably sick of me saying it, but hopefully it's starting to drill in a little bit that Acts is not primarily about these historic, random historical events or um, even the Acts of these apostles. We're not trying to look at them specifically, but we're trying to show that these are the Acts of the risen Lord Jesus, that from heaven, after his ascension, he is building his church by his spirit and... Um, I think that lens helps us to focus on what's really important and not get lost in some of the details. So last week we talked about the lame beggar. We're going to be in Acts 3.11 this week through 26. We looked at the the healing of the lame beggar, and so we talked about how um, simply observing a miracle doesn't save anyone. We looked at places like Luke 16 and stuff like that, and how this crippled man shows us our spiritual condition before Christ, that we were spiritually crippled, and unable to come to God. And so like him, we need this miracle. We need an act of the risen Lord to come and make our hearts new and all these things. And so so we looked at the healing last week, and this week we'll look at Peter's sermon following that, and we'll see that Jesus has come to fulfill all that the Old Testament promised. So I'm going to read the passage, I'll pray, and then we'll look at it closer. So this is Acts 3.11, if you want to follow along with me. This is the word of the Lord. And while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astonished, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and by his name and by faith in his name he has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. And Moses said, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers, and you shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, In your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him first to you to bless you by turning everyone from your wickedness. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. Um, There's a lot in this passage today, but we pray that you would open our eyes to see not only the goodness of um, Peter in confronting these people about their sin, but ultimately pointing them to Christ as the fulfillment of all things. 
And I pray this morning that you would cause faith to rise up in us, that we would feed on Christ truly, and that as we go from this week, we would be encouraged knowing that Christ has done it. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Morning, guys. <laughs> okay, so lots in there. Um, I'm not sure what you all are thinking right now, but there's a lot. There's a lot crammed into these um, 15 or so verses. And some of you might even notice some parallels from the Pentecost account, right? What happened at Pentecost? God acted in pouring out his spirit, similar to how Peter healed this man. There's confusion about what happened at Pentecost. They thought everybody was drunk. <laughs> but here, they, they're not sure, why is this man healed? We'll look at that. And then um, the apostles correct their wrong thinking, and they point them to Christ. So just some interesting parallels to be pointed out there. But again... Um, there's confusion. And so we're going to look at Peter's sermon, this spirit-filled sermon where he points to Christ from the Old Testament, namely. And we're going to try to see how Peter anticipates some of the questions that these people might have. Um, So the first question they might have is this, by whose power? So they saw this man that's been there for 40 years. They saw him raised up and walk. And so their first question is, whose power did this? Was it your power, Peter? Was it your power, John? And this was a common thought in the day. Um, If you do good, then good will happen to you, right? And that's even common in our day, too. What is that called? What do people call that? Karma, right? If you do good, good will happen. If you do bad, bad things are going to happen to you. That's why your tire got flat. That's why you um, don't step on sidewalk cracks because you'll break your mother's back, things like that. So, right, that's just superstition at the end of the day. That's not the biblical understanding of how things work. We talked about providence this last week. So, um, so these people think that, okay, Peter, and if you look there in verse, um, I think it's 13 or 12, it says, he said, it's not by our power or our piety. Piety is simply good work. So it's not by our good works. We weren't good enough in that we made this man well. He's saying that's not that. It was the power of the risen Lord. And so they're drawing attention not to themselves, first and foremost, that Look what we did. Look how miraculous this was. They're, they're pointing to Christ. And so they might have another question, right? I thought Jesus ascended. I thought we killed him, essentially. How is Christ from heaven able to heal this man? That's sort of an odd thing if you actually think about it. How is this ascended man healing people? And um, we see that uh, Peter here points them not to... Um, Christ's human nature only, but his divine nature, right? That Christ was not just fully man, but he was fully God. And that by virtue of him being divine, God himself, as he ascends into heaven, he is able to give benefits to his people from heaven, that he's not bound by time or space as a man is, a mere man, but he is divine in nature also. And so he's able to give these benefits. So he didn't stay dead, he arose from the grave, he ascended into heaven, and he sits enthroned. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago. So God has glorified his servant, has given him all authority, and because of that, he is able to dispense these benefits to his people. So it's not by the apostles' power, and Christ is not bound um, to just a human nature. He is also divine. Um, But this should, in pointing to Christ... Peter here is also pointing to their sin. If you want to look at verses specifically 13 through 15, he's not just telling them what God has done. 
through Christ, he's also pointing to them and showing their sin. So if you look, um, he uses this very pointed language of you. He uses it several times. You delivered. You denied. You rejected. And so he's setting up this contrast between here's what Christ has done and here's how you responded. And so there's, a, there's about four of these kind of contrasts, right? You see in verse 13 that Jesus was God's servant. You see that in verse 13. What did they do to God's servant? They rejected him. Then it says that he, Christ was presented innocent by Pilate. If you remember, Pilate says, I have nothing to condemn this man with, but they say crucify him. Um, in verse 14, it says, you denied the holy and righteous one. So this one that's holy and righteous, they chose a criminal, Barabbas, over Christ, if you remember that part of the crucifixion narrative. And then finally, it says this author of life. He's identifying Christ as the author of life. You killed him. And so there's this contrast that's happening between who Jesus is and how these Jews responded to that. And so you can almost think some of them might say something like, well, I wasn't the Roman soldier that put the nail through his hand, you know, so it wasn't really me. I didn't do it, you know. But Peter is very pointed in his language. He's not mincing words. He says, you killed him. And so this is a real guilt before a holy God. And if we think about it, this is Peter really using the law to convict these, these people that are standing before him that they're guilty before the law, that they've murdered the only innocent man to ever walk the face of the earth. And they've murdered the one that the law pointed to, Christ himself. Remember, Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. So they have murdered this man, and they are guilty. So, the power is not their own, it is God's, and through Christ, namely. Um, he's able to do this by virtue of his divine nature from heaven, and yet they are guilty. And so, Peter anticipates another question, which is, well, we didn't know. We didn't know he was God. We didn't know these things. How could we have known, right? They kind of plead ignorance. But as many of us know, that ignorance to the law does not remove guilt from the law. Um, maybe some of you have been caught going 70 in a 55. <laughs> you can't say to the officer, well, I didn't know. And he'll say, oh, you're free. You know, the law is the law. And even if we're ignorant to it, um, it is still true. It does not remove our guilt. So... You, if you look in there, it's kind of interesting. He does say that they have some sense of ignorance. It says, you acted in ignorance. And I think we can say that this is an ignorance to the magnitude of the situation. That Peter is saying, you guys were ignorant um, to... It's not that they knew that they were crucifying God in flesh, right? They acted in some sort of ignorance. But this does not excuse their, their um, total lack of ignorance which we'll see in verse 18, and I have it printed on your sheets if you want to look. It says, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So what is he saying here? What does this mean? He's saying that you Jews had the Old Testament, the part of our Bible that we typically don't read a lot of, but this good two-thirds of our scriptures, the Jews had this, the New Testament, what wasn't written at the time of this sermon. But these people had the Old Testament. And what Peter is saying here is that God foretold these things, that his Christ would suffer and that Christ has come to fulfill these things. And we even see this sprinkled in some of Peter's language. If you want to look at verse 13, he calls 
Jesus the servant of God. And it also says that, he rege- that these people rejected him. And so our Old Testament light should be going off. If we think about where in the Old Testament is there a servant that is rejected and despised by men? We should think of Isaiah 53, right? He was despised and rejected by men. They accounted him... Um, oh, let's, let's just read it. I have it pulled up. What does it say in verse 3? It says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. So Isaiah here is um, being referenced that there is a servant of the Lord that's going to come, that's going to suffer and be rejected by his people. Um, you'll notice in verse 22, towards the second half, he references Deuteronomy 18, where Moses says there's going to be a prophet that's going to come after me that's greater than me, and you need to listen to him. And if you'll remember in the transfiguration, where Christ's kind of glory is revealed for a second, there's a voice that comes from heaven, and what's it say? It says, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. That's a direct quote of Deuteronomy 18, and Peter here is doing the same thing. He's referencing this prophecy from Moses that a prophet would come after him that was greater than him. He also references, in verse 24, Samuel. And one of Samuel's most well-known prophecies was to David, that one would come after David whose kingdom would have no end, who would sit enthroned forever. There's also, um, in verse 25, Abraham is mentioned, that Abraham was promised this offspring that would bless the nations. This is in Genesis several places. And Paul picks up on that on Galatians 3, and he says, it's not offspring referring to many, but referring to one who is Christ. So this Christ was promised, even in this promise to Abraham, that Christ would come and bless the nations through his person and work. And so we can say this succinctly, that Christ has come, and fulfilled all that the Old Testament pointed to. And so you might say, Kendall, what are you talking about? <laughs> what does this mean, right? We rarely even read this older part of our Bible. And so you might say, is Peter inventing a new meaning? You know, the Old Testament had one meaning to those people, but Peter here is just kind of coming up with a new meaning. He's, maybe he's allegorizing the Old Testament. That means to make it not historical, right? But we have to remember that Peter's not doing that, that these are real people. These were real events in the Old Testament. There was a real land, a real temple. All these things are real. They're not um, myth, right? But what Peter is saying is that all those things pointed to something. They had a focal point, and that was Christ and his person and his work. And so when we see all these ways that Christ is promised in the Old Testament, we we can have faith and we can trust that God's saving plan is happening. And so this question, like we've talked about before, from Genesis 3 onward, is how is God going to save this sinful people? From the garden on, man is sinful. And the question is, how is God going to save these people? And the answer that is given is through, in Genesis 3.15, the serpent-crushing seed of the woman, all the way from Abraham's offspring, David's better king, Moses' better prophet, and this suffering servant of Isaiah. And so we can agree with Peter when he says, you don't have an excuse. You should have known these things. They should have searched the scriptures and seen that this Christ was going to come. And there were some that did. If you look at Luke, there's some that anticipated this work of Christ. And so the next question that Peter is anticipating is, okay, we are guilty. We have killed the only perfect son of God. What do we do? 
and it's kind of it's kind of echoing what we saw in the um, the account at Pentecost, right? They turn to him and they say, "What shall we do?" And Peter says a very similar thing in verse 19. He says, "Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out." So Peter is not just going to beat them down with the law and their sinfulness. He's not going to leave them in their sin. He's going to point them to to first turn from their sin and to run to Christ. And so this idea of God's mercy might actually surprise them a little bit, like we talked about in the, um, the sermon after Pentecost, right? The Jews knew very well that those that went against God were destroyed. And so they would have known what was coming. You look at Deuteronomy, there's all these curses that are being poured out on people that, that disobey God. And so they would be surprised by this idea of mercy and repentance, in, in a sense. And so we should ask that question, why is God extending mercy to these people? They've killed his perfect son, why should they receive mercy? And the answer that we can say, in one sense, is one word, covenant. And you might say, Kendall, where are you getting that? <laughs> but God is a covenant-keeping God. He does not go back on his covenants and his promises. He keeps them. And so we could look at other places like the garden to see how God gave a covenant to Adam that if he does this work upon completion of this work, he'll be given benefits. But we know that Adam failed to keep that covenant. And so the rest of history is really God making this covenant of grace with mankind where they say um, they look forward to this one that would fulfill the works for them and give them as a benefit to the people. And so this is really what we talked about in our, um, in our confession of faith. We said, how do we know this? How do we know that Christ is the only mediator between God and man? It says the gospel tells us this. So this is the gospel, that one would come that would not only pay the penalty for these people's sin and wrongdoing, but would come and give them all the benefits that they could not earn. And so at the end of Peter's sermon... Um, next week we'll look at it more closely, but in chapter 4 it says 5,000 were added to their number that day. So, Peter's sermon is effective. They see Christ, they turn from their sin, and they run to him. So, there's a lot of theology in here. There's a lot of things to think about, but like we do every week, let's try to take a step back and try to apply some of this truth that Peter is putting forward. So, two things mostly. First, that our guilt before God is real. These people, uh, some of them might be quick to say, I wasn't there. I didn't put the nail through his hands. I'm fine. I'm innocent before God. But Peter is quick to say that you rejected the Son of God. And this is something that we often do, that we reject the Son of God. And this is not a neutral act. If you meet an atheist out there, they might say, well... I just don't believe in your God. I believe in a different God, right? And they think of it as kind of a neutral thing. It's not good. It's not bad. But what they're essentially saying is that on Judgment Day, I'm going to stand before God based on my own works. That I don't need a mediator. I don't need a savior. I don't need someone that can pay for my sins and secure righteousness that I can stand before him on my own. That's what they're saying. And I think as Christians, if we're honest, that sometimes we can fall into this sort of thinking we can say something like this. You know, I have the gospel at the beginning of my Christian life, and, you know, Jesus saves, and maybe I said a prayer, but the rest of my life, you know, it's about me working. It's 
about me securing this righteousness that I can present before God. And that can tend to bring either pride, where we say, look at how good I am. Look how much good stuff I've done. And we can compare ourselves to others. Or it can cause us to actually despair, where we say, man, I don't measure up. You know, Jesus was good, but man, I'm not good. (laughs) And we can really fear the judgment day, if we're honest. A lot of us tend to fear judgment. This was me for a good part of my life. I thought, you know, Jesus saves, but man, I'm pretty messed up. I'm pretty bad. And so we have to remember that salvation is by Christ alone. And you might say, Kendall, that's easier said than believed and um, rested on. And so the next, the second point is, how can we know this to be true? How can we know that us as sinful people can stand before God on the final day? And how can we have assurance that we won't fall away? That all these things that we've done, that they won't keep us from God's presence. And the answer that we have to give is that Christ has done it. And so in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, in his ascension... Like I said, Christ purchased these benefits, (laughs) which is namely justification, adoption into his family, sanctification. These are all things not that we earn or that we can do. They are things that God has purchased and that from heaven he gives them by his spirit. (laughs) And so it's kind of a weird thing to think about, but it's worth thinking about. How are we on earth in this physical world? How are we partakers of what Christ has done. It's by his spirit. It's by faith. And these are all things that Christ has won. And so what is faith? Is faith this constant grinding of our gears to try to pull up ourselves by our own bootstraps? No. Faith is receiving what Christ has done and resting on it alone for salvation. And so we can say at the end that Christ has done it, that he's the better Adam that resisted temptation, that he's the offspring of Abraham that blesses the nations He's the prophet that's better than Moses. He's the king from David's line that will sit enthroned forever. He's the suffering servant of Isaiah that brings many sons to glory. And so as we're going to read in the next song, in Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. So we can take joy and comfort that even in our sin and in our suffering that Christ has done it, that we can rest in him today. And like Peter says in the last verse, turn every one of you from our wickedness, that Christ has not left us in our sin, that he comes, gives us a new heart with new desires, that we can obey him with joy. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your Christ, that you promise him in the old, and he has come in the new and fulfilled all that he promised. And we pray that this morning that you would give us faith to receive and rest on all that Christ has done that we would not look first and foremost to our own works, to our own goodness, but that we would look to Christ and that we would see that he's not just a good example of how to live, that he is the one that lived in our place and did what we could not do. Um, Give us strength by your Holy Spirit today. We need your Spirit in powerful ways. We pray that you would send your power on us by your Spirit and that we would rest in Christ today. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you guys want to stand with me, we'll sing in Christ alone.
sing the doxology with me. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Benediction this morning is from the last verses of the Bible, Revelation 22. It says this, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Amen. Um, Again, if you think about it, just pray for the long bonds this week. And um, if anybody has any prayer requests, feel free to share them. Be praying about where we're going to meet. I do not want to meet outside in the sun again. So there's... um, some pavilions in the park that we might look at, but if anybody, we're looking at some other options, but if anybody knows of a place that would seat us, um, be thinking about that. Does anybody have any prayer requests outside of that? Okay. 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 Thank you guys. You can either hang around and get hot or whatever you want to do.